Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, suicide, and sexual assault of minors. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a summer day in 2003, an 11-year-old, who we're referring to as Brooke, watched a sinister grin spread across Daniel Perez's face. She shivered as one of the three spirits that inhabited Perez took over his body. The angel of death, Amber, had a vision to share. Brooke was terrified. Whenever Amber visited, it meant someone would die. After a moment, Perez regained control and announced the news. He'd seen the future, and sadly, his best friend and right hand, Trish, would soon depart this world. Brooke couldn't believe it. If Perez was like a father to her, then Trish was a second mother. She couldn't die. She just couldn't. But Perez assured Brooke everything would be all right. He promised he could bring Trish back to life. And young Brooke, not knowing any better, believed him. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we investigated Daniel Perez's mysterious beginnings and how he adopted the name Lou Castro. We also discussed the founding of Angel's Landing, a small commune of sorts Perez established to house his first followers. This week, we'll learn more about what life was like on the commune and the abuse Perez's devotees had to endure. Then, we'll meet the authorities who finally put a stop to Perez's violence. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. By 2002, 43-year-old Daniel Perez had established a small 20-acre compound in Wichita, Kansas. With him were at least six followers, Trish and Brian Hughes, a young woman named Callie, and Jennifer Hudson, along with her daughters, Brooke and Sarah. 
Angel's Landing, as they called it, was nothing flashy from the outside, but Perez's followers lived there lavishly. There were parties every weekend, a fleet of sports cars, ATVs, swimming pools, and horses. Whatever the commune wanted, Perez supplied. Of course, not everything was roses. Only a year earlier, two commune members had died in a shocking plane crash. Afterward, Perez collected their life insurance policy worth $750,000. Using that financial cushion, he and his so-called family settled into their new home. It was the first time Perez didn't feel the need to live life on the lam. He loved his life in Wichita, and so did everyone else. Everyone, that is, except for 11-year-old Brooke and 18-year-old Sarah. As we mentioned last week, Perez forced himself on Brooke soon after she arrived at Angel's Landing. He moved her into his house and had her sleep in his bed every night. But she wasn't the only target of his abuse. Sadly, Sarah was also a victim. While Perez groomed Brooke, he was more violent with Sarah. When she didn't do exactly what he wanted, he screamed awful, degrading things at her. He told Sarah she was broken and that he was the only person who could fix her. If she wanted to be whole again, she needed to submit to him. He raped her. As Sarah explained in a later interview, she then asked Perez if she was finally fixed. But Perez claimed the fix was temporary. He told her that she had to keep having sex with him, and she couldn't tell anyone about it either. If she did, Perez threatened to kill her father. Sarah was terrified. Her mom may have taken both her and Brooke to Angel's Landing. But Sarah was still devoted to her father, who didn't live far away. And she had no doubt in her mind that Perez, or one of his horrifying angels, would make good on his threats. So she stayed quiet. Perez raped Sarah hundreds of times while she lived at Angel's Landing. As with her younger sister, he insisted that he wasn't the one doing these terrible things. It was one of the angels that inhabited his body. He was the one who hurt them. He threatened to send them to purgatory if they didn't obey. When it was over, Perez acted kind and gentle, as if he had nothing to do with it. He'd even apologized for putting the girls through the torment. Obviously, none of what he said was true. The sisters, though, were none the wiser. But Perez played them off one another, driving them apart and making them suffer alone. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Perez used sexual and emotional abuse to keep his victims under his thumb. Additionally, abusers often isolate their victims from their support systems, as Perez did with Jennifer's daughters. Sociologist Evan Stark studied another pattern of abuse termed coercive control. He compares it to a hostage-like situation, where the victim becomes captive in an unreal world created by the abuser, entrapped in confusion, contradiction, and fear. That's exactly what Perez did. His power over the girls was so strong that they believed everything he said. They thought they were broken and needed fixing. And they knew not to anger Perez because he could send an avenging angel after them. While Brooke and Sarah lived in pure hell, the commune slowly grew. Sometime in 2003, Brian Hughes met a man named David while working at a construction site. David seemed laid back and easygoing. But like so many of the Angel's Landing folk, he proved vulnerable. He'd just lost his wife and felt incredibly lonely. 
Not long after visiting Angel's Landing for a barbecue one afternoon, David decided to join the group, and Perez welcomed him with open arms. But supporting another person meant the life insurance payout would be gone even sooner than expected. Luckily, it seems Perez had planned ahead. Sometime in the past two years, he instructed Trish to take out her own life insurance policy, this time for $1 million. He told her to name her husband Brian as the beneficiary. Callie, another member, was the co-beneficiary. When his bank accounts eventually dipped below 10 grand, Perez knew what he had to do. It was time for a visit from Amber, the angel of death. At some point in mid-2003, Perez experienced a so-called vision in front of Brooke and Trish. They watched as his eyes glazed over and a wicked grin spread across his face. After Perez received the heavenly message, he returned to normal and told Trish her time had come. She was going to die soon. Although Trish was aware of her life insurance policy, it's unclear whether she realized Perez's intentions. Given how well she took the news, it seems that she genuinely believed he could see the future and that he'd bring her back to life. They'd been friends for almost a decade. She trusted him completely. Everything was going to be just fine. It never crossed Trish's mind that Perez might be the reason her time was up or that he wouldn't hold up his end of the bargain. In June, the day of Trish's foretold death finally came. After returning to the compound from lunch, Trish, Perez, and Brooke headed to the pool. It was Trish's turn to clean it. 11-year-old Brooke was there to help. But when they got there, Perez told Brooke to wait in the nearby pool house along with Trish's toddler. Suddenly, Brooke knew what was going on. The 26-year-old Trish kissed her daughter goodbye, then turned to Brooke and assured her that she'd be back soon. There was nothing to worry about. But Brooke was worried. She hid with the toddler, unable to shake her mounting dread. Then she heard a splash and a scream. Brooke panicked. She wanted to run out and help, but she'd been given instructions that she didn't dare disobey. A few minutes later, Perez came to meet them. He was wet and out of breath. He didn't bother to explain. He did have some more directions, however. Brooke needed to wait in the pool shed for another 20 minutes, then get in the pool with Trish's toddler and call 911. She should tell the police that Trish fell and hit her head while trying to rescue her daughter. Brooke did as she was told. She waited for 20 excruciatingly long minutes. Then she finally went outside. She saw Trish floating face down in the shallow end of the pool. She was shocked, upset, traumatized. But even then, she did as instructed. She jumped into the water with the toddler. Then she hopped out to call the authorities. Meanwhile, Perez took Sarah to a car dealership in town, giving himself an alibi. By the time authorities showed up at Angel's Landing, he was discussing the latest models with a sales rep. Eventually, Brooke called Sarah in a panic and told her that she and Perez needed to come home. The cops were there. Pretending to be oblivious yet concerned, Perez raced back with Sarah. They got to Angel's Landing as the authorities pulled Trisha's body from the pool. When it came time to take statements, the police believed Brooke's story. They had no idea of the power Perez held over her and didn't believe she had any reason to lie. Based on her account in the police report, the medical examiner deemed Trisha's death an accident. 
Although not everyone was so quick to write off the incident, a Kansas detective named Ron Goodwin didn't buy the initial report. Unbeknownst to the commune leader, Goodwin had shown interest in Perez for a while now. He'd observed from a distance as Perez dwelled on the large plot of land living the high life. Goodwin, who was then working as a narcotics officer, came to suspect that Perez ran a drug operation and that his commune was in on the scheme. He vowed to get to the bottom of it. What the detective eventually uncovered was worse than he ever could have imagined. Coming up, investigators try to crack Perez's scheme. Listeners, most of you probably know that I host another podcast series called Serial Killers. What you may be surprised to learn is that we've been working on that podcast for five years now. So as a special treat for the fans, we've prepared an anniversary series examining the mythology surrounding four of the most feared killers who ever lived. Kemper, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer. This four-part series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made them renowned for all the wrong reasons. Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any true crime or storytelling fan, and this fifth anniversary special is not one to miss. Check it out today by following Serial Killers, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 2003, 44-year-old Daniel Perez foretold the death of his very first follower, 26-year-old Trish Hughes. Then he murdered her in cold blood for the insurance money. Not long after Trish died, her husband Brian Hughes received her life insurance policy. He handed the money over to Perez for the commune. It totaled $1 million. Now, after nearly going broke, Angel's Landing was back in the green. There was just one problem. Perez promised to bring Trish back to life, but of course, he couldn't actually do that. 11-year-old Brooke may have wondered if her second mother would walk back through the front door. She may have hoped that what Perez said about his powers was true. But the weeks went by, and Trish never showed. Perez must have given his followers some sort of explanation as to why he didn't bring Trish back to life. What that was, however, we don't know. Brooke was the only one who was really aware that Trish's death wasn't an accident, but she was too afraid to speak up. Perez and the angels who inhabited him intimidated the girl into silence. And maybe she continued to hold out hope that one day Perez would change his mind about bringing Trish back. Instead, over the next three years, Perez lived the high life. He spent around $1.5 million on cars. He threw extravagant parties at Angel's Landing. He even donated $19,000 to the police for them to buy a new vehicle. It seems the gift inadvertently convinced them to stay off his back. The show might have worked on the beat cops who didn't realize Perez's true nature, but Detective Goodwin saw right through it. While Perez partied, 
Goodwin dug into his past. The biggest red flag for the detective was the fact that Perez kept getting richer, even while seemingly unemployed. His initial instincts told him Perez ran some kind of a drug ring. Goodwin looked up Perez to see if he had any prior convictions. But remember, Perez was going by the name Luke Castro at the time. So when Goodwin ran that name through the police database, he got nothing. Yet, that only piqued his interest more. According to Detective Goodwin, the only place where the name Lou Castro showed up was in an obituary for Mona Griffith, where Lou was named as her surviving brother, even though the two were not related. There were other suspicious things about Perez, including the 2001 airplane crash. While investigators initially ruled it an accident, some details simply didn't add up for Goodwin. For example, the landing gear was down, but the flaps were up during the incident. Normally, both would be down to slow the aircraft, even in the event of a crash landing. It wasn't a smoking gun, but it certainly seemed odd. Between that and Trisha's recent death, Goodwin's gut told him something was up. But without knowing Perez's real name, he hit a wall. So he tried to collect some evidence from Angel's Landing. Since he didn't have access to the property, he dug through trash bags after they'd been picked up. He looked for drugs to bolster his narcotics ring theory, but he also wanted a fingerprint. He figured he could run it through the system and figure out who Perez really was. But as much as he searched, he always came up empty. There were never any prints to be found, no drugs, and no incriminating evidence. After three years of this, Goodwin was at his wit's end. He still had no idea who Lou Castro really was, and he was nearly ready to give up. Meanwhile, Perez was planning his next moves. He knew the good times couldn't last forever, not unless he had a new pot of money to draw from. So he made preparations. During these three years, he had Brian, Catherine, Jennifer, and another new member of the commune all take out life insurance policies. By 2006, Perez went to Brian Hughes, Trisha's husband. After Trisha's death, Brian had fallen into a depression. Instead of trying to pull him out of that dark place, Perez reportedly talked to Brian more and more about the benefits of death. He assured Brian that Trish was in a better place. Going to the other side was the ultimate goal, actually. And someday, Brian would get his chance to meet her there. In March of 2006, Brian went to South Dakota to visit family, leaving his young daughter in Perez's care. One day during this trip, 31-year-old Brian called Perez and spoke with him for a long while. We don't know what they said on that phone call. All we know is that Perez eventually handed the phone over to Brian's daughter, and supposedly, Brian told her goodbye. Hours later, while working in the garage, Brian was under a car when his jack slipped. The weight of the vehicle crushed him. The death looked like an accident, but for anyone who knew him, it didn't make any sense. Brian was always safe in his garage. A jack slipping was an amateur's mistake. We can't say for sure what caused the accident, but in a later interview with the show Deadly Cults, Sarah said that she and her mom believed Brian's death was a suicide. If that was true, Perez's power of persuasion must have been impressive. Even after Trisha's death and Perez's failure to bring her back to life, some of Brian's closest friends and relatives thought he might have convinced Brian to go through with it. 
This is called encouraging suicide, and it's a criminal offense in some states. If that indeed happened here, then Perez could have manipulated Brian with fatal results, all without ever laying a finger on him. In the aftermath, Detective Goodwin certainly thought there was something suspicious about Brian's death. After three years of dead ends, the incident reinvigorated the case. He began to comb through the financial records of people who belonged to Angel's Landing, and he noticed something strange. Several substantial life insurance policies were paid out to the people that lived with Perez, and this seemed to happen every two and a half years, just as the money was starting to run low. Goodwin might not have known who Perez really was, but he wasn't going to stop until he found answers. So far, the trash bags hadn't provided anything of use. But then, one day in 2007, Goodwin happened to pass Perez driving through town. It was a unique opportunity, and the detective had to take it. He followed Perez to a restaurant where he watched the man eat lunch. After Perez finished and left, Goodwin asked the manager for all the dishes Perez had just used. Maybe this time he could get a fresh set of fingerprints. It was a good idea, but unfortunately, it didn't work. There were absolutely no usable prints. Still, Goodwin wasn't deterred. He tried yet another ploy. This time, he printed off a stack of glossy photos and headed out to Angel's Landing himself. Perez answered the door. Goodwin told him there had been some robberies in the neighborhood and asked if Perez recognized any of the vehicles in the photos. He handed the pictures to Perez for him to flip through, but to his astonishment, Perez held each photo on its edges, carefully avoiding leaving any fingerprints on the glossy surfaces. If anything, that only made Goodwin more suspicious. No one would handle photos like that unless they had something serious to hide. Desperate for answers on this quixotic case, Goodwin called in the big guns. He enlisted the help of Clint Snyder, a detective known for his work on the notorious BTK serial killer case in Kansas. He also brought in FBI Supervisory Special Agent John Sullivan. Sullivan checked all of the FBI databases for anyone going by Lou Castro, but he too came up with nothing that matched the man they knew. The three men were stumped. They had no leads on who Perez really was. Everything at the commune was under other members' names, and they didn't know where the money that fueled the group came from. But eventually, all that changed. In 2008, Perez told real estate agent Jennifer Hudson that he'd had a vision. She was going to die. Jennifer had heard Perez making these statements before. After all, she'd been a commune member for the last seven years but she probably never thought it would happen to her. Not long after their talk, on September 22, 2008, Jennifer got into her car and started driving. She made it to a two-lane highway, then she swerved into oncoming traffic. She hit a semi-truck head-on, killing her instantly. Back at the commune, 24-year-old Sarah called her mom. There was no answer. Sarah didn't think much of it until that afternoon, Perez came to the house and told her that Jennifer had been in an accident. Sarah knew instantly that it was more than just a fender bender. She asked Perez if her mom was dead, and he wouldn't answer her. Then she got angry. She yelled and screamed at Perez, demanding to know what he'd done to her mom. Sarah had been around long enough to know that no one came back from the dead, despite Perez's claims to the contrary. Trish and Brian had both died, and neither had come back. 
She was pretty sure her mom wouldn't either. She and her sister were devastated. Meanwhile, the investigating team of Goodwin, Snyder, and Sullivan also learned about Jennifer's death. She was the sixth person to die in eight years, all within the same family commune. It just reaffirmed the pattern Goodwin saw. In an interview with Deadly Cults, Detective Goodwin said, I believe that the power that Lou had over Jennifer unwittingly led to Jennifer's suicide. Detective Goodwin also saw the financial records as Perez collected another round of life insurance. He received almost another million dollars, but he knew he was pushing his luck. As much as he loved Angel's Landing, it was time to move again. This time, though, a simple move couldn't save him. Coming up, one of Perez's followers turns on him. Now back to the story. In the fall of 2008, 49-year-old Daniel Perez collected his fourth round of life insurance. Just like every time, one of his followers had died a mysterious death. And even though things were going well financially, Perez didn't want to press his luck. A few months after Jennifer Hudson's car accident, he told the group they were moving to Tennessee. Jennifer's daughters, 17-year-old Brooke and 24-year-old Sarah, weren't thrilled with the idea. Their dad still lived in Kansas, and after losing their mom, they didn't want to be apart from him. But Perez couldn't give them up. He convinced Brooke by telling her they were moving to Tennessee because of her. They'd be close to Vanderbilt, the college she wanted to go to. Once again, Brooke was the princess and everything revolved around her. Or at least Perez made it seem that way. Brooke eventually relented and agreed to move. But Perez didn't have the same luck with Sarah. She couldn't stand the thought of being so far away from her father. When she told Perez she wasn't going with them, he got, quote, scary angry with her. But Sarah held her ground. According to a 2017 article in the journal Psychiatry Research, leaving a cult is no easy feat. Certain factors are key to whether someone can actually make the break. One of the most frequent reasons why someone stays in a cult in the first place is because they have deep ties to the group, such as a family member or romantic relationship. It stands to reason that when a connection like that is broken, things might change. For Sarah, her mother's death turned her entire world upside down. Exactly. The researchers found that former cult members who left their groups generally did so after acknowledgement of contradictions between group doctrine and events, personal conflict with the doctrine, and disillusionment. Sarah had witnessed firsthand that Perez's miraculous claims weren't true. He said he could bring people back from the dead, but he hadn't done that for her mother or Trish or Brian. She'd grown entirely disillusioned, and lucky for her, she had a loving father waiting in the wings. According to the study in psychiatry research, having outside family members who are understanding and non-critical also increases the likelihood of breaking free. Sarah had the support system she needed, and so she took it. She left the commune once and for all. In the spring of 2009, Perez, Brooke, and the remaining commune members moved to Columbia, Tennessee. Sarah remained in Wichita, now on her own, for the first time. Finally free of Perez's immediate grasp, the 24-year-old met a normal guy at a bar one night. His name was Daniel McGrath, and the two of them started dating. Slowly, over the course of their relationship, Sarah told him about her time in the commune. 
She didn't confess to all the horrors she'd endured, but McGrath became unsettled by the little she did tell him, and that feeling intensified when he overheard a heated conversation Sarah had on the phone. It seems that despite being free of Perez, he still called to keep tabs. McGrath listened as the conversation devolved into a full-blown argument. When Sarah finally hung up, McGrath had a better understanding of how truly awful her relationship with Perez was, and McGrath had some difficult questions to ask. At one point, he asked Sarah if she'd been sexually abused. She paused. She hadn't thought about it that way before. But with it spoken out loud, it all fit into place. Perez had raped her for years. Hearing all of this, McGrath knew he had to do something, so he started looking into Perez and dug into all the mysterious details. Eventually, he realized it was all too much for him to handle on his own. So in December of 2009, unbeknownst to Sarah, he went to the FBI's website and found their contact form. McGrath wrote the FBI an email detailing all his suspicions about Lou Castro, including the life insurance payouts. He also mentioned that the man was now going by the name Joe Venegas and living in Tennessee. When the FBI received his note, they were astounded. This new info was the big break they'd been waiting for, not to mention they now had a source who was willing to talk. They brought McGrath in to question him on his own first. They were worried that if Sarah knew, she might get spooked and warn Perez. And that was the last thing they wanted. With McGrath's information, Goodwin, Snyder, and Sullivan were finally able to crack the case. They followed the money, eventually uncovering the fact that Perez had collected millions of dollars over the years. With that, Goodwin and his fellow detectives received the go-ahead to pursue Perez. They started formally building a case against him for insurance fraud. Now, all they had to do was wait. They could catch him using the fake identity and arrest him. Identity fraud was a federal crime, too. Sure enough, Perez, who the authorities only knew as Lou Castro, opened a bank account in Tennessee under the name Joe Venegas. They even caught him on camera. With this evidence, authorities obtained a search warrant and showed up on Perez's doorstep. They arrested him as Lou Castro for identity fraud. Even then, Perez was confident he could talk his way out of the charges, but the authorities were done listening to his lies. They handcuffed him and whisked him away. Then they searched the house. At the station, Perez refused to give the authorities his real identity. They interrogated him for six hours, and still he didn't budge. At least they were finally able to take his prints. The authorities were still unraveling the mystery of who Lou Castro was, but that didn't stop the wheels of justice. Under his alias, Perez pleaded guilty to the fraud charges and was sentenced to two years in prison. Goodwin believed Perez only pleaded guilty to avoid even more serious allegations during a trial. But if Perez thought Goodwin would give up after that, he had another thing coming. Goodwin was pleased to have Perez off the streets for two years, if only because that gave some time to nail Perez for the life insurance scheme. Not to mention the sexual abuse that Sarah's boyfriend, Daniel McGrath, had told authorities about. But to convict Perez on charges like those, Goodwin needed more than McGrath's hearsay. So he questioned everyone he could about the man going by Lou Castro. At last, he got a crucial lead. Trish's sister remembered that Trish had once gone out with a guy named Daniel Perez. Maybe he was the one Goodwin was looking for. Goodwin jumped on the new name and ran a search. There was a record of the guy, 
and a mugshot. Staring right back at him was Lou Castro, or as we know him, Daniel Perez. And the fingerprints for Castro and Perez were a match. Finally, Detective Goodwin knew who he was really dealing with. Meanwhile, with Perez behind bars, Brooke and Sarah began explaining their experiences to the detectives. At first, they were fearful because they didn't want to get caught up in the legal issues. Both were scared that they'd somehow be implicated in Perez's crimes if they spoke up. But the authorities took time to assure the girls that they weren't going to be in trouble. Eventually, Brooke told Goodwin how Trish had actually died. And just like that, the case officially escalated from fraud to murder. During the two years Perez was locked up, Goodwin and his team put together an airtight case against him. After his initial two-year sentence concluded, they immediately re-arrested him. This time, it was on 28 counts, including first-degree murder, child exploitation, sex crimes, and fraud. At the trial in February of 2015, Brooke and Sarah were the star witnesses. Their testimony was crucial to exposing Perez's lies. Which was easier said than done. Sarah recalled seeing Perez in court and being terrified, as though he were going to jump across the table and get her. Brooke felt equally scared of going up against the man who had had such a strong hold over her. She knew she was the only one who could definitely tie him to Trisha's death. She had to testify. Between that story, the girl's harrowing accounts of sexual abuse, and the fraudulent life insurance scheme, Perez was in deep water. For his part, all he did was deny. He said all tales of the supernatural, along with all charges against him, were pure inventions of the prosecution. He said he wasn't a seer or an angel. He couldn't actually see the future. He also claimed that an unspecified injury to his genitals kept him from sleeping with unwilling partners, and everyone he did have sex with was of legal age. He also claimed to suffer from serious memory loss after supposedly getting beaten up by four unidentified men in 1997. As a result, he didn't know where all the commune's money came from. It wasn't a very effective argument. The jury took only three hours to deliberate before convicting Perez on all 28 counts. A month later, he received two life sentences, one for Trisha's murder and one for sexual exploitation of a child. In addition, he got 34 extra years for the remaining counts. He was sent to a maximum security correctional facility. He won't be eligible for parole until he serves 80 years, so he'll be locked up for the rest of his life. Today, there are still unanswered questions. Perez's following was always small, and since so many of his adult supporters met their untimely deaths, the commune's time together remains shrouded in mystery. We'll never know exactly what led Mona Griffith, Trish Hughes, Brian Hughes, and Jennifer Hudson to put their faith in Perez. But what we do have are two courageous young women who spoke up. Sisters Brooke and Sarah were able to do something truly miraculous. They not only saved themselves, but helped to prevent anyone else from getting sucked into Perez's twisted fantasy. And after his conviction, Brooke and Sarah were finally free to rebuild their lives. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. 
For more information on Daniel Perez, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dateline's Angels and Demons and Deadly Cult's Angels Landing especially helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Cults was written by Alex Burns, edited by Robert Tyler Walker and Terrell Wells, with fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 